Welcome to the Morning News Podcast for Monday, August 24th. We begin with the announcement that Aaron O'Toole has been chosen as the new leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. We get reaction from Dwayne Bratt, political scientist from Mount Royal University. And then we continue our coverage of the CPC leadership race, specifically the final announcement, which took place six hours later than originally scheduled. Global's Ottawa correspondent Abigail Beeman explains what was behind the technical delay. Next, we head stateside to look at a busy week ahead in U.S. politics, with the Republican National Convention kicking off on Monday. We catch up with Reggie Cicchini, Global's Washington correspondent, with details on what we can expect. And finally, it's your chance to contribute to community science in your own backyard. We hear details on this week's Backyard Bio Blitz and how you can take part. Eight nineteen on the morning news, and yes, as promised, uh, we're joined by Dwayne Bratt, political scientist, Mount Royal University. Good morning to you, Dwayne. Good morning. The big debate here in the uh, seven seventy studios. Um, is uh, was it a late night for Dwayne Bratt, or have you gone to sleep yet? <laughs> no, I waited right till the end. I watched Aaron O'Toole's uh, speech. Um, it's not unusual for uh, leadership races to have these sorts of delays, but not when you start at three in the afternoon. <laughs> you know, to, to go to midnight. I mean, one basketball game ended, and two hockey game ended, <laughs> uh, and we were still waiting for ballots. Okay, Dwayne, let's break it down. We've talked about the numbers and who got behind Aaron O'Toole, but who is Aaron O'Toole? And do you think he is the one to bring progressives and the the you know the right side of the conservative? party together under one real big strong roof well that's just the challenge around aaron o'toole who ran a fabulous campaign um he really did but who is the real aaron o'toole because he ran for the leadership in 2017 he was near the top but he obviously did not win but he ran as as a moderate conservative this time he ran as a much more blue conservative and he pulled it off but if you look at what he was able to do, he can say, look, at where we need to win is in suburban Vancouver and suburban Toronto. And I am an MP from Durham Region, from suburban Toronto, and I have won multiple elections here. Uh, but I also won Alberta and I won Quebec. So I've got reach across the country. I've got support from where there's a lot of conservatives in Alberta where there's few conservatives in Quebec and where we need to win. And I think that was his appeal. He was also able to bring in a lot of the social conservative voters who had supported Derek Sloan and, and Leslie Lewis, uh, but without being overtly social conservative. So, you know, he's uh, we're going to have to see a bit more of who Aaron O'Toole really is, because in the campaign he was trying to appeal to all sorts of constituents. Mm-hmm. Which is always great, right? You know, hey, I'm, I love everybody. Come on in, right? Yeah, and, and he did give a great speech last night, much better than Andrew Shear's angry um, speech as he was walking out the door. Mm. The problem is McKay's, or uh, sorry, O'Toole's speech was at midnight Calgary time, <laughs> so about 2 o'clock in the morning in, uh, in central Canada, so I don't think anybody watched it. Well, I'm wondering, you know, if we uh, like get really local here, uh, what does it mean to have somebody like Aaron O'Toole at the helm of the CPC for Albertans? What, 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 what is well, the, he the started his campaign in Calgary. He got the endorsement of uh, Jason Kenney. Um, he described himself as an Ontario conservative who was trying to understand Alberta. And he got a lot of support from UCP um, ministers and MLAs, as well as 
some but not all of the Conservative MPs. Um, so what he needs to do, though, is be able to bridge it. If you take Alberta's vote of 69% Conservative in the last election and you bring that up to 80%, that doesn't help you. What he needs to do is keep that Alberta support but broaden it to other parts of the country. Mm-hmm. And that's Aaron O'Toole's challenge. And the fact that he's not from Alberta, I think, is a benefit to him in doing so. We'll be watching and see, you know, all the details that start to come out. Thank you so much for your take on it. Appreciate your time, Dwayne. Okay, thanks, guys. That's Dwayne Bratt, political scientist at Mount Royal University. 6.48 now, and it was supposed to be a quick vote and a fast decision. Wasn't, though. Joining us with details on last night's uh, a bit of a debacle in the CBC CPC candidate uh, vote. Aaron O'Toole finally declared the winner, and Abigail Beeman joins us with all the details from Global Global's Ottawa correspondent. Good morning, Abigail. Good morning. So, okay, Aaron O'Toole, finally, it was very late uh, compared to what it was supposed to be in terms of the announcement, but what shaped this dramatic victory? Tell us about it. Well, I think the biggest thing that uh, shaped this victory is the ranked ballot system, and that was, of course, no surprise. Everybody knew that this was uh, that this was going to be a, a big contender going into things, but the way that it works uh, is that voters have the opportunity to rank all four candidates on their ballot, uh, and if no candidate gets a majority the first time around, which is exactly what happened last night, then the lowest place candidate, which last night that was Derek Sloan in fourth place, uh, drops off. His votes re distributed to the other two candidates. It then had to go to a third ballot after Leslie Lewis dropped off. Her votes redistributed to McKay and O'Toole, and that's how McKay came out the winner. So that tells us a few things here. Uh, An important one to note is that uh, both Leslie Lewis, who, by the way, performed extremely well, you know, in fundraising, in in the way she handled her campaign, uh, we could talk about that uh, separately, but she did very well. Uh, Both Leslie Lewis and Derek Sloan are social conservatives. So the fact that Aaron O'Toole was able to win here shows that he was able to reach out to that arm of the party. Aaron O'Toole is not a social conservative himself, but already in his victory speech, it talked about, you know, the importance of unity in the party and uh, making the conservative uh, party a place where where everybody feels welcome. So uh, he was able to court that further right vote, uh, and that's part of what helped him win. Another thing that's important to note uh, is Quebec. Uh, we learned yesterday, earlier in the day, that the Conservatives tripled their membership in Quebec. It's you know not necessarily an area of strength for them, or certainly not recently. Uh, and then we learned that it was Aaron O'Toole that was uh, largely uh, attributed to to that success. He really swept that province. That's going to be critical for the Conservatives uh, when they uh, look to their goal of defeating the Liberal government. They need to do better in Quebec. Uh, they also need to do better in suburban and urban areas. That's, you know, a long-standing, no surprise there. The Conservatives do better in rural parts of Canada. Uh, and Aaron O'Toole is, it's, is the, for the first time, a leader who does not come from Western Canada, and he represents a suburban uh, Greater Toronto Area riding. So all of those things are uh, interesting at play as the Conservative Party tries to move forward. And, you know, moving forward, it wasn't even last night. It was this morning, technically, for much of the country. Let's talk yep. about that technical issue. It, it, it sounds like it was a machine, not a computer, but a machine that was uh, involved with opening the envelopes. 
That's it. You, you got it exactly right. So the way that uh, this machine was supposed to work, it's an envelope opening machine. It is supposed to open envelopes by slicing them open, uh, but it was slicing into some ballots as well. Now, we still don't know this morning how many ballots were affected by this process. Uh, the most we got from the party last night was that it was, quote, several thousand ballots. A good time to, to note that uh, there was record-breaking turnout in this election. Close to 175,000 people cast a ballot. So a few thousand, it could be a small percentage of that overall total. But every time they ran into a damaged ballot like this, uh, they had to take it out of the machine where it was damaged. They then had to get a fresh ballot, mark up the fresh ballot to match this damaged one, feed it into the counting machine. There was, for a time, confusion as to whether it was the counting machine or the envelope opening machine, which was uh, eating into these uh, envelopes. But uh, there you have it. That was at least part of the delay or a big part of the delay. As the night wore on, it seemed to be unclear why there was a delay, you know, later in between the first and second uh, ballot. But uh, a big reason was that technical problem with the machine. Well, thank you so much for joining us with an update, Abigail. Appreciate your time. Thanks. That's Global's Ottawa correspondent, Abigail Beeman. And uh, Aaron O'Toole is the new leader of the Conservative Party. Time now for great ideas for park-to-go airport parking with Value Valet. Thanking you for parking at home at this time to help flatten the curve. Please keep safe. Coming up to 719 on your Monday morning, it's a new study with very promising findings. Research from Sweden suggests people with mild or asymptomatic cases of COVID-19 might just have immunity from future infection and even long-lasting immunity. With details, we're joined this morning by Dr. Ted, Jab- Ted Jablonski. Ah, oh, Dr. J, he's our on-call family physician. Dr. Ted Jablonski is what I said. I've got Monday morning mouth. Good morning, Dr. J. Good morning. Great to talk to you. It's been a while, but this is a really interesting study because doesn't this fly in the face of what we had heard previously? Yeah, so initially, early into COVID, we thought that people who had a mild infection would get long-lasting immunity because that's more typical of infection. But then studies were showing that after three months, if you had a mild or an asymptomatic infection, you had no antibodies at all. So when you did the blood test to look for antibodies, it was negative. So we assume then you don't have immunity after that mild infection. This this study says we're back to where we started, back to square one, uh, that perhaps you still do have immunity, but it's different than the antibody immunity. And that's what's throwing everything off. But it's extremely promising or very good news. So what do you mean by different from the antibody immunity? So, yeah, this is where we get a bit technical. So our first line of defense uh, for any kind of infection would be our skin, our mucous membranes, our uh, the cilia, the little uh, hairs in our nose, etc. That sort of blocks a lot. Second line of defense is uh, there are white cells. Our white blood cells come to aid us and fight, and there's sort of two populations of those. The first ones are the T cells, T white cells, which are like snipers that sort of kill off the infection as quickly as possible. But if they don't work, they recruit B cells, which is like the army. The army comes in, multiplies, and that's what makes antibodies. So typically when we see a bad infection, the T cells can't uh, kill it off. The B cells are recruited. They make all the antibodies. And we see evidence of that by doing a blood test looking for antibodies. So the more antibodies we see, the more immunity we think in the future, because now we have this army ready to go if that infection ever came back again. But what we're finding now is that that T cell may be the key to COVID, that the T cell alone can kill COVID off, and it doesn't need to recruit the B cells. 
So by looking for antibodies, we were missing the main uh, sort of the main line of defense, which is the T cell, which will it does have a memory. And those snipers, if they see COVID again, will knock it off. Or that's the belief now. So very different theory. So does that fuel the fire then for the herd immunity argument? So interesting. (laughs) Potentially, um, uh, yes. Now, again, this is way premature, and I certainly don't want to render an opinion or Mm -hmm. a definitive opinion on this. But in theory, uh, this would go along with uh, the folks who believe in herd immunity, believe that would be a good idea. It could be fueled through these T cells. And yes, and then it could make some sense, actually. Mm -hmm. Having said that, as a a PhD, would you uh, suggest... Continuing social distancing, hand washing, and mask wearing? Of course. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I was also encouraged, if and when we get the vaccine, that everyone gets a vaccine. Um, You know, and I don't think this would change that too much, thinking, well, you know, this new study says I don't need a vaccine because I had a very mild infection and those T cells may protect me. They may or they may not. And they have a memory too, which will only linger so long. So, uh, you know, there's a lot, uh, lots to be sorted out yet, but definitely very, very promising news for, for the populations at large. That's awesome. Thank you for the update, Dr. J. Appreciate it. Okay, you betcha. That is Dr. Ted Jablonski, our on-call family physician. It is the morning news here on 770 CHQR. The Republican National Convention Kicks off uh, with an in-person roll call today in Charlotte, North Carolina. With all the details, we're joined by Global's Washington correspondent, Reggie Cicchini. Good morning to you, Reggie. Good morning. Happy Monday. Happy Monday to you. Before we get to the convention news, it was it yesterday that we heard about Kellyanne Conway saying that she's going to call it a day, the end of the month. And you look at the calendar, today's the 24th. She's got a week left. Uh, <laughs> shocking to you? Uh, I mean, look, she's putting her personal family above uh, politics and above her job, uh, you know, and she can be commended for doing that because this is somebody who has been with the president from the very beginning, from when he was simply a candidate back in 2015. Uh, She's been a staunch supporter of the president. The president has leaned on her as counselor. So this is a big deal for the administration. But at the end of the day, both she and her husband are kind of stepping away from the the battle of politics that the two of them have in a public setting, uh, really to go home and focus. Focus on their kids. Imagine their dinner dinner table conversation because one of their children is a daughter, very outspoken against Donald Trump as well. Yeah, and I mean, look, so too is her husband, George Conway. Mm-hmm. He was one of the founders of the Lincoln Project, and they're obviously an anti-Trump group of Republicans. So, you know, you can imagine the dinner table conversations <laughs> have been heated over the last four years. Uh, but at the end of the day, you know, the, the, the one daughter had kind of come out publicly, publicly criticizing both of her parents and the roles that they've taken on. So they're now going to step back from the public spotlight. The big convention kicking off the RNC, and it's interesting because uh, seeing how slick the Democratic uh, convention is, I'm wondering how much of an influence that will have on what we're going to see from the Republicans. Well, we know that there's going to be an aspect of virtual uh, kind of convention atmosphere uh, to this four-day program. We don't know how much, but we do know that there is going to be a significant number of in-person live speeches, whether they're in Charlotte, North Carolina, or whether they are in D.C. Uh, And there are concerns that any kind of crowd that does join, yes, they will have to self-test themselves or self-swab themselves, but there is a fear that this could potentially spread 
uh, uh, the virus in and around. What we do know is that on the first night uh, tonight, uh, with the speakers that are on the list, uh, some of them have the last name of Trump. Uh, the pandemic, the coronavirus, is really not expected to be kind of discussed at large. And what we're likely going to hear are some of those divisive politics uh, that the president really has been showcasing for the last four years. Reggie, do we know much more about the lineup specifically moving through the week? I understand that Donald Trump will speak each and every night. Do we know anything else? Yes. So, I mean, most members of the Trump family are going to speak over the four days, whether it's his wife or whether it is his children and their spouses. Uh, that's going to be spread out over the four days. Uh, we also know that the president himself is going to break norms by speaking at this every single night. But tonight, uh, there's the couple from St. Louis who were brandishing weapons in their driveway when Black Lives Matter protesters walked by. They are going to be speaking. Matt Gates will be speaking. Jim Jordan. These are people who are almost sycophantic in their uh, kind of push for the Trump agenda. That is what we are likely going to hear as the week goes by. Okay, now uh, off, uh, off the beaten path a bit, how about entertainment-wise? Did they assign anybody up to perform? There have been no uh, uh, kind of words uh, of who may be providing any kind of musical entertainment or comedic style entertainment to this. The speakers list simply includes people who are uh, part of either the administration or elected Congress people or members of the Trump family. There are no other names on this list that could potentially give any kind of, uh, you know, like jovial atmosphere uh, to this convention. Uh, you know, there is always uh, going to be those last minute additions that kind of get announced through the day. So that's just one of those. We have to wait and see what they actually intend on doing. The Democratic Convention virtual yes but slick for sure so how will the republicans shape up against it with especially the latest polling i understand reggie has uh joe biden again pulling forward there yeah joe biden's still leading by 10 points and that's why i think with this lineup that you're seeing that the president has kind of put together along with his campaign what they're really intending to do is drum up support within his base this list of speakers is really not going to draw anybody new in and it may not be enough to flip any kind of independence we also know that the the campaign itself isn't going going to be putting uh, forward a policy platform if the president were to win in November. They're simply going to run on what the president talked about in 2016, but they've also said that they simply want to do uh, let the president do what he's going to do. That's also going to potentially cause a bit of a rift. We know that there are a significant number of Republicans coming out uh, uh, to speak out against the president and potentially go and vote for Joe Biden. Uh, when we're talking about how this is going to play out, though, I mean, a lot of it is going to be live. We're not sure what that virtual atmosphere is going to be, but we do know that the president uh, is somebody who likes to treat TV like it's his own TV reality program. So there could be a few flashy moments that will likely make the viral trending. And, you know, speaking of virtual, uh, this is uh, the ultimate in virtual. Uh, Senator, uh, or sorry, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo going to be addressing the RNC from the other side of the globe. Yeah, he's going to be in Israel giving his speech. Obviously, the Trump administration potentially using this as a bit of a, you know, a flagpole to say, look at what we've done when it comes to peace in the Middle East with the number of agreements that have been signed uh, with nations in the Middle East to get along with Israel. But there are also secondary problems here in that Mike Pompeo is the secretary of state who is supposed to be the nation's top diplomat. And there are concerns that as a sitting member of the cabinet, he's in violation of what's known as the Hatch Act, which disallows somebody who is a part of the government from actively politicking uh, and, and kind of speaking on behalf of the party. Uh, and when you are looking at the nation's top diplomat now kind of using his position to just push for the president and not for the betterment of the country, there are concerns that that is going to, uh, you know, raise any kind of violation with the Hatch Act. It's the same uh, with Ivanka Trump when she speaks later on this week and with Kellyanne Conway. Hmm. I just want to go back to the point that you made that this is going to be a real production, this, this uh, convention itself. And did I hear correctly that Donald Trump has hired the folks behind The Apprentice to put this thing together? 
Well, we know that there are going to be some people from the president's past as a citizen who are going to be taking play, a part in kind of making this a big spectacle. Remember, the, the Democrats really spent weeks and weeks putting together their virtual platform, whereas the president, it was only within the last month or so that they actually decided they were going to pull all of their support out of Florida, or at least the live programming out of Florida. So this could be one of those moments where we have to wait and see what kind of flashiness the president and the campaign really try to put forward. But this is a president who likes to steal the spotlight, uh, and we can imagine that no matter what the Democrats try to do to counter-program it, the president is going to try to stay one step ahead. Let's back it up and talk about the fact that uh, President Donald Trump will be um, front row and center every single night. I believe, it is it 10 p.m. Eastern? Is that right? It starts at, well, yes, the networks, at least the, the, the networks pick it up at 10 o'clock. It's on cable starting at 9 o'clock really throughout the day. Okay. Uh, but the, it's, this, this breaks norms. The president yeah. doesn't typically become a part of this program for the entire thing. You, they usually <laughs> just come out when they speak for the, convent, uh, for the nomination. So for the president to be a part of this, it kind of gives you a taste and a sense as to what he actually wants this to look like, a presidential, uh, uh, rather a, a convention that's solely about him and not about the party but and the country. Wouldn't you want that crescendo at the end? So I, you know, I'm wondering if he, he thinks this would be more effective breaking norms well, look at remember, he's not trying to, or at least the, the way that this is being carried out, it's not to try and woo in new supporters. It's to try and keep the base where it is, considering it's been slowly picked away. And we see those numbers for Joe Biden. He's simply trying to drum up the anger, the divisiveness, uh, and that kind of Republican first attitude that he's kind of ingrained into the Republican Party and his base from the beginning. This is not about trying to pull a Democrat over to his side. Can't wait to uh, continue to speak with you, Reggie, about how this uh, Republican National Convention rolls out and what we see each night. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you. That's Reg Cicchini, who is Global's Washington correspondent. Coming up to 717, time now for helicopter traffic for West District by Truman. Main streets highlight 20-foot sidewalks and integrated bike paths. Well, we ventured into the southeast. We're checking out Deerfoot Trail here northbound. Off to a pretty good start for your Monday morning drive as you continue up towards Southland. But it is uh, getting a little sunny out, so around the Casper Bridge, the glare factor is going to be an issue for you. Also in the northeast, southbound May off the right lane. It isn't causing a major delay, but it is definitely a distraction if you're heading through the area. We've got a few police vehicles out on scene for it. A Deerfoot Trail out of the northeast as you come in from Airdrie, southbound from the QE2 down to Memorial. That's still sitting at about nine minutes, so still moving fine for you, um, as well as 14th Street if you want to grab that from the northwest to down into the Beltline. You're looking at about 15 minutes from Country Hills Boulevard. Calgary's moved to TELUS and get 227% faster download speeds than Shaw's Freedom Network. Based on open signal independent analysis, visit TELUS.com slash network. Up in the 770 CHQR traffic helicopter, I'm Brady Howard. 609 on the morning news. Calls to defund the police have gained traction across the country. Political leaders are acknowledging racism and police violence as serious problems with some promising uh, to take action on the whole situation. Many of their proposals actually increase police funding. To elaborate, we're joined by PhD candidate in sociology at the University of Waterloo, Crystal Shore. Good morning, Crystal. Good morning. This is a very interesting take. It goes counterintuitive to what we've been hearing about defunding the police. Uh, the increase of police surveillance technology uh, being the answer. Tell us about this. Okay, so um, I think the main point we were trying to get across in our take on the issue is that, just like you said, political leaders are finally acknowledging systemic police racism and violence as a very serious issue. But at the same time, they're funding expensive, very expensive police surveillance technology, which not only stands in direct contrast with 
the whole defund the police movement and what many communities experiencing police harm are asking for. But these technologies can actually exacerbate the harms for Black, Brown and Indigenous communities across Canada. And how is that, Crystal? Why would it be a negative thing to have, say, for example, the body cameras? Doesn't that make it better and easier to find out the truth in these situations for everybody? Sure. And I think that's a common um, a common thought with these technologies is, you know, how, how can they be anything but good? But at the same time, my research uh, dives deep into these technologies. And at the end of the day, they are fundamentally a police surveillance tool. And we already know there's issues with police racially profiling individuals. And now by expanding their police surveillance capabilities we're actually expanding their capacity uh, for engaging in racial profiling and, and targeting certain communities in addition what i think a lot of people don't realize is that technologies like body-worn cameras are being paired not just in the u.s but in canada with facial recognition technology which itself is racially biased many people don't know that the chances of being misidentified by facial rec- recognition technology is high but especially high if you are black and even higher if you are a black woman. How does this uh, stack up on our side of the border in Canada compared to, you know, the U.S. and other countries as far as the technologies being used at this point? Well, the U.S. has been implementing these technologies for years now. Um, And I think that's an important point to recognize is that police violence hasn't really changed in the U.S. despite these technologies being implemented. We are starting to to catch up here in Canada, and especially uh, with the events this year, police services across across the country are now looking at implementing this technology. So, I mean, really, when you dig down and you you say you you did quite a deep dive, what did you end up finding out in in terms of what what are people hoping for? Do they want, who wants these body-worn cameras, for example? Um, I think police services are increasingly on board with this technology, and a lot of them will acknowledge that it's a great evidence-gathering tool. And it also uh, can help reduce police complaints against police, but that doesn't necessarily equate with a reduction in police misconduct. It actually means that police now have more, um, more to support their narrative of events when they have their point of view on camera. Um, I think... Some people, just like we said earlier, are under the misconception that this technology will increase police police transparency and uh, legitimacy, but really there's very little evidence to support that. You mentioned uh, there's an article on theconversation.com that it's still the organizational dynamics and structural inequalities within police forces across the nation. So can you touch on that a bit and how that could perhaps be changed eventually? Absolutely. So the police racism and violence is a systemic issue. We're not dealing with a few bad apples here. And so narrow reforms like the implementation of body-worn cameras and even things like bias reduction training, these are not systemic changes. They're not, uh, they're not capable of addressing this issue on a wide scale. So I think that's where the defunding the police movement comes in is because that's actually a systemic change. That's going to change the fundamental way police operate in Canada. 
I think a lot of people misunderstand what defunding the police really means in the end, too, thinking that it's, you know, trying to take power and money away from the police, where really, in the end, it's it's giving them assistance, isn't it? So who, anti-poverty groups, Black Lives Matter groups, for example, what kind of reforms are they wanting? I think there's a lot of acknowledgement by these groups that there's other programs that are much better targeted for addressing these issues. Anti-poverty, decarceration programs, including housing, healthcare, education services. We know these are effective tools for reducing both crime and inequality. Moreover, you know, we're still amidst a global pandemic. And I know in my province, the Ontario government just pledged $6 million for expanding CC closed-circuit television cameras uh, and announced the hiring of an additional 200 provincial police at a time where parents and teachers and school boards are begging for reduced class sizes for more teachers in our schools. So I think there's a lot of ways that we can uh, direct this funding in a better way. Of course, at the heart of uh, any police organization, it's paramilitary when you really break it down. And these uh, sorts of things take, you know, steeped in tradition and history take a long time to change. So how important is it that we continue this conversation about systemic racism within police forces to, to, to follow this change through and not have it be a flash in the pan? Exactly. You're exactly right. Um, it's essential. It's essential for people's lives uh, that are on the line here. And I think you touched on an important point when you talk about how, you know, there's there's a long history at play here. So change isn't going to happen overnight, but change also isn't going to happen with uh, reforms that address individual behavior. We need to look at what the role of policing has been historically and is currently in society and ask ourselves, you know, how how do we want police to operate in our society going forward? Do we want to increase their their surveillance capabilities with this militarized equipment or you know do we want to relieve them as many police services are acknowledging their overburden uh do we want to relieve their role for addressing some of these social problems certainly an interesting discussion i know our calgary police force is in the midst of that as well talking about what that might look like and certainly looking at systemic racism within their force too so and we may be chatting with you again about this thanks for joining us crystal that's great. Thank you so much. That's Crystal Shore, a PhD candidate of sociology at the University of Waterloo. Not just our uh, police force, as you mentioned. She's mentioning Ontario. And mm-hmm. uh, uh, the, the point I ma- made, we can't expect this to be wrapped up with a nice bow, I think, by the end of 2020. It's a tough one, isn't it? I mean, you look at body cameras, for example. It, um, I just I would have thought they were great. Yes, because, you know, whether you're doing wrong or you're doing right, the camera will catch that. But there are certainly groups that obviously feel differently from that. Including Crystal's group there. Mm-hmm. 617, time now for helicopter traffic for West District by Truman, Calgary's newest and best master plan community. Still seeing a pretty nice drive on Deerfoot Trail as you head off the QE2 from Airdrie down towards Memorial. Heading off onto Memorial Drive towards the downtown core. That's a smooth drive onto the 4th Avenue flyover. Still have that construction though on Center Street downtown to watch out for it. 3rd Avenue southeast just south of the river. That has traffic down to two-way traffic um, for that. And then all the way up in the northeast, we do have a collision that crews are responding to at Métis Trail and 88th Avenue. So if you're leaving Saddle Ridge, Cityscape, Skyview Ranch, Redstone, be aware of those emergency crews on scene. Don't settle for less than 99% coverage. With TELUS, you get far better mobile coverage in Alberta than with Shaw's Freedom Network. Visit telus.com slash network. For the 770 CHQR Traffic Helicopter, I'm Brady Howard. 
749 now, and the Nature Conservancy of Canada is holding their big backyard bio blitz today in Alberta. So what exactly is it and how can we help? We find out from Hannah Shepsmeyer, who is the Conservation Volunteers Program Manager at the Nature Conservancy of Canada in the Alberta region. Hi, Hannah. Hi there. Thanks so much for joining us. Talk to us about this. What is the big backyard bio blitz? Yeah, the Big Backyard BioBlitz is a cross-country initiative to help connect Canadians to nature. So it's really easy to participate. Um, Folks just need to download a free iNaturalist app and go out and snap pictures of species in their backyards and local green spaces. And then those will get verified by scientists and then contribute to global knowledge of biodiversity. Okay, so that sounds pretty high-tech when you say uh, biodiversity. Does this yeah. mean that we, we want to see what is uh, you know living in certain areas of the world or specifically in our cities? Yeah, so it uh, helps paint a snapshot of the species that we find across Canada in different areas. So if you go outside snapping everything from a dandelion in your backyard to maybe a beaver you find in the river, it helps us get a greater understanding of the distribution or the... Um, spatial arrangement of all these different species across the country and in our own backyard. And what a great way to get the family outside, moving around, and maybe uh, teach the kids a few things while they're out there. So we download an app and then we just send in our pics? Yeah, certainly. So you can register by going to our website at natureconservancy.ca backslash bioblitz. And then when you go there, you can register and we'll send you all the information. And it's as simple as downloading an app and then going out with your smartphone or tablet that has the app installed and taking a few photos and uploading them to the app. And from there, a scientist will verify it and you'll get a notification of what the species is. So it's a really great way to learn as well. Maybe there's a plant or something or a bird you've been seeing Mm -hmm. all summer that you really want to know. So, yeah. Now, is it only today? Let's give us a a bit of a timeline. Can we stretch it out for a while? Yeah, definitely. So the BioBlitz is running from today, um, so Monday, August 24th, all the way until Sunday, August 30th. So you have plenty of time if you want to download the app and hit up a few different natural areas or you go on daily walks and you want to take part every day. Um, Fantastic idea, great program and a fun one to get the kids outside. I love it. Thanks for joining us, Hannah. Yeah, thank you. Have a great day. You too. That's Hannah Shepsmeyer, who is the Conservation Volunteer Manager with the Nature Conservancy of Canada. And again, it's natureconservancy.ca slash bioblitz.